You were right. I was right. Good for me. <laughs> There's your cold, your cold open right there. I was right. Okay. Hello and welcome to Basket Bubble, the podcast about the NBA and life inside the Walt Disney World bubble. I'm Matthew, and I'm joined as always by my beloved co-host Bodie. Bodie, how are you doing on this wonderful Sunday afternoon? I am doing pretty all right, Matthew. How are you? I am great, Bodie. We made it. We went through 89 basketball games in what two and a half weeks' time, and something like that. And everything for the most part, worked. I was pretty excited to see that the end of the season went off with a bang. We had a play-in game for the eighth spot in the West between Memphis and Portland. Uh, both teams went neck and neck quite a bit. And at the end of the day, Portland pulled it out, got the eighth seed. Uh, we'll talk more about postseason matchups here in a little bit. But what were your thoughts overall with the seeding games? What did you think, Bodie? It was impressive. They were... Very competitive. The quality of play, I mean, a little shaky at times, but you throw out the eight worst teams and all of a sudden it looks like every team in the league is good. It's just it's like a magic trick. You, you make the bad disappear and everybody's cream. I, I think not having home court changed some of that too. You didn't have to have people traveling around. You didn't have the little advantages and disadvantages of being in somebody else's arena. It was just when you level the playing field, you really get great basketball all the way through. All right. Well, we're going to jump in starting with the news. First thing first, y'all, we have a real life former NBA player who is going to be interviewed on today's episode. Uh, We're recording Sunday August 16th at around two o'clock central time. And I had the opportunity and the total pleasure of interviewing Ronnie Brewer on Wednesday. As some of you may or may not know, former Razorback, former Utah Jazz player, former Chicago Bull player, was just really, really awesome to sit down with him for about a half hour, talk basketball, talk his history, talk about what he's really seeing now in the NBA. Ronnie is also a assistant coach at the high school level here in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And he talked a little bit about what it was like to play and seeing now how student athletes are playing and to see how that has changed. Uh, Just a really great interview. So make sure to stick around for that after we get through some more of the news here. Yeah, Brewer played on the Derrick Rose Chicago Bulls teams back at the start of the LeBron James Miami Heat teams. And I hated those Bulls teams, (laughs) absolutely hated them. So I I had some questions that I gave to Matthew, so I'm interested to hear how the interview went. Yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was great digging into uh, hearing him talk about the experiences he had with the the great late Jerry Sloan as a coach, Tom Thibodeau, seeing where Tom Thibodeau is now in New York, uh, just hearing a lot of really awesome things from someone who knows basketball really well inside and out. So make sure to stick around for that. It was announced earlier this week that after the first round of the playoffs, that players will be allowed to have guests inside the bubble with them. The initial guidelines are four guests per player but that can be exceeded for children. Guests can travel on team charters following testing and that they will be allowed to attend games. 
some of the things beyond that were they do have to have a seven-day quarantine, which they can split between their home city and Disney World or do it all in the Disney World bubble. There is one interesting restriction that we'll get into a little bit later during Thanks COVID. The basic way of saying it is that you have to know the person. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I, I don't want to steal your thunder here, but I have heard some very interesting takes and thoughts on who is and isn't a part of these quote unquote guests. Like how, how well do you have to know a person? I'm excited to hear what you have to think about that, Bodie. Yeah. Like, like is Lou Williams finding a way to bring Magic City <laughs> to the bubble? Just the chef for those wings. That's all he needs. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's all he was there for. Throughout these eight games, the NBA announced that they were going to be awarding some seeding games awards. The obvious choice for NBA seeding game MVP was Damian Lillard. Of course, had a standout eight games and really put that Blazers team on his back to will them into the playoffs. Uh, exciting to see that the. NBA seeding games coach, how did they word this? The coach of the seeding games is how they word this. Who else would it go to but the Phoenix Suns coach, Monty Williams, who took his team 8-0 and in the seeding games and yet still could not get them into the playoffs. Really says something about him as a coach and what we have to look forward to with this Phoenix Suns team. And, you know, the bright side to all this is they got a lottery pick now. So they you know, may end up with someone pretty solid here when it comes draft time. Other players who made the all-seeding games first team included the Phoenix Suns' Devin Booker, Dallas Mavericks player Luka Doncic, Houston Rockets' James Harden, and Indiana Pacers player TJ Warren. As you are waking up and immediately listening to our podcast, we are a few hours out from the postseason starting. Starting at 1230 today, we have the Utah Jazz and the Denver Nuggets, which will begin our bubble playoffs, which Utah just happens to be a part of every beginning and ending of this season. (laughs) Gobert ending the regular season, then Gobert starting the first getting the first basket in the bubble, and now he might get the first bubble playoff basket. But we have eight different matchups in these playoffs, and I'm going to give you a brief rundown of what we can expect from those. And if Matthew wants to jump in here and there, if I say something crazy, he is more than welcome to do that. Starting in the East, the 1-8 is the Milwaukee Bucks and Orlando Magic. Not a lot to say here. That's going to be, yeah, it should be over right away. If Jonathan Isaac hadn't gotten injured for Orlando, there would be some basketball nerd stuff about him to watch. But other than that, this is really just four more bubble games for the Bucks to hone their skills before they move on to tougher opponents. Then the 2-7 in the East will be the Toronto Raptors against the feisty Brooklyn Nets. Do not be surprised if Brooklyn takes a game Maybe two, just because when Karis LeVert gets hot, Karis LeVert gets really, really hot. They, they won't, Brooklyn will not win. Toronto is the vastly superior team. They have so much defense, so, so many guys who, 
who know what they're doing. That doesn't sound very, very <laughs> <good>. analytical. <laughs> yeah. But it also kind of sounds like I'm dissing them. When we look at these two teams, I mean, the Brooklyn Nets that we're seeing in the bubble, they have played eight games together. When we look at Toronto, Toronto has this defending championship team. They're really only short one guy from that team a year ago. This team has a ton of chemistry. They know how to play well together. And they know... The best coach in the league. Undoubtedly. And this team knows when one player is not having a great game, they know who needs to be their next go-to guy. If Pascal Siakam's having an off night, Kyle Lowry puts it into gear. So, yeah, this this Brooklyn team has been a lot of fun to watch. But, I mean, we're going to be looking at their ninth game together. <laughs> it's not going to be... They're not going to be able to contend with Toronto. Toronto in any way, shape, or form. Exactly. Yeah. Toronto is going to handle this series. It's just, I hope Brooklyn shows us a little of what they showed us against Milwaukee and against Portland in those bubble games. So now Matthew's favorite series is Boston against Philly in the 3-6 matchup. It's Matthew's favorite because he's a Boston fan and Philly is decimated. So his team should win rather easily. Philly's all-star point guard Ben Simmons is out. It should be for the rest of the season because Philly shouldn't make a deep playoff run, but he could make it back if Philly pulls off some miracles. The Sixers need Embiid to go for like 35 points every single night and then somehow find a way to guard Jason Tatum because they have nobody who can guard Jason Tatum anymore. They're really maybe the most depressing team in the whole league which makes this maybe the most depressing series of the whole series. Unless you're a Boston fan. <laughs> well, which would get even more depressing if Boston were to lose. Yeah. Because <laughs> then everybody would be like, well, what's wrong with Boston? <laughs> so for just the sake of sanity and the league, let's hope Boston wins that series. The most interesting series in the East is the 4-5 between the Indiana Pacers and Miami Heat. Not really because it should be that much in doubt who should win. Miami is the better team. They're the healthy team. Indiana is missing DeMontis Sabonis, and Victor Oladipo is still working his way back to being who he is. But these are two very solid teams all the way up and down their roster who are well-coached and play hard. They play very hard. And there's a rivalry. Jimmy Butler hates TJ Warren. Mm -hmm. I can't stand the guy if you want to look up that history. So we, even if Miami would sweep Indiana, which probably won't happen, just to go and see Butler just locking down TJ game after game would be worth tuning in all on its own. Over in the West, I'm going to come back to Lakers-Portland later because I have some things to say there. So we're going to go straight to 2-7 which is the Los Angeles Clippers versus the Dallas Mavericks. This is one of those things for the Mavericks where it's like it's kind of like a Greek tragedy. You you go to the Oracle and the Oracle tells you some bad news that you don't want to you don't want to hear. In this case for the Mavericks, you're going to try as hard as you can and yet you're just going to lose all the time and then these bad things are going to happen because of that. But Dallas is young and they think they're hot stuff and they're going to give it all they can. And yet Kawhi Leonard is just going to be fate just telling them, nope, and take over every game and end it. And then in true Greek tragedy fashion, like Christoph Sporzingas will go like kill Rick Carlisle by accident. Delonte West will come up from wherever oh. he is and start dating Luka Doncic's mom or oh. something like that. But 
Dallas is really good. The Clippers are just great. And Dallas isn't ready yet for a team like that. So have fun with this series. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's just predestined from the beginning. What's going to happen? This is going to be a very high scoring match. Dallas doesn't like to play defense. And I think the Clippers are going to have a little bit of a hard time stopping Luca and KP if they're both feeling hot. But, for sure. uh, but yeah, I, this is going to be, this is going to be a high rolling game for sure. Yeah. Dallas statistically has the greatest offense in NBA history. Mm. So the Clippers, even with how good of a defensive team that they are, they're, they're not going to stop this team. They're just going to maybe slow them down yeah. a little bit. 3-6 is Denver, Utah, which was a fascinating series until a couple hours ago when we found out that Mike Conley, the Jazz point guard, has left the bubble to go attend the birth of his child which means he will definitely miss at least the first two games and maybe more beyond that. Hopefully not more than the first two, but I mean, dude, spend time with your kid. Yeah. Good for you. Congrats. Even without Conley, Utah doesn't become a giant underdog. It just makes it that much harder of a series than it was already going to be. This is one that a lot of people thought would go seven games, and it, it still could. It's a fascinating matchup between two all-world centers. A lot of swing guys between the two teams. Donovan Mitchell, Jamal Murray going at, at, out on the perimeter. We just we don't know anymore with how long Conley's out. So the edge has to go to Denver, but hopefully Conley can come back and make that more interesting. The Four or five matchup in the West is the Houston Rockets and Oklahoma City Thunder, which is the series everybody was hoping would happen when they started to realize that Oklahoma City was actually good this year. The reason being James Harden versus Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook versus the Thunder, Russell Westbrook versus <laughs> Chris Paul, and now Russell Westbrook's out for who knows how long with a strained quad muscle, I believe. This is still a great series. Houston is the weirdest team in the league to watch, where they play nobody taller than 6'7 and just fire up threes all game long. Whereas Oklahoma City is about as conventional as it can get. Chris Paul running pick and roll after pick and roll. Some shooters out on the wings and Steven Adams kicking butt down low. It'll be a long series. It'll be... It'll be a lot of grinding. You might see Houston win some games by 20 points and then OKC come back and win some games by six or seven. And then you really have no idea what the end of the series is going to be like. Westbrook being out really limits Houston. Houston should still win this series, but you take that second playmaker off the court and that's a lot of work for James Harden to have to go through. And the Thunder, with how good and smart Paul is, with how great of a coach they have in Billy Donovan, they're the type of team that can find that advantage and pull off the kind of mini upset that this would be. So the series I skipped was the Los Angeles Lakers versus the Portland Trailblazers, because this is the one I'm most connected to. I've been a LeBron fan for years and years, so forgive any bias that I show over the next however many hopeful months that the Lakers are still in the playoffs. Portland's good. Portland's a very good team, as they showed us in winning a bunch of games in the bubble and winning that play-in game over Memphis. And they 
are a lot of people are giving them a shot at beating this Lakers team. And you can see why. Lillard is the hottest player in the world right now next to Devin Booker. CJ McCollum and Gary Trent are playing well. Mello looks a lot younger. Yusuf Nurkic is just beasting people underneath the rim. But the Lakers, they have the best players. As good as Lillard is, you do not mistake him for the best player in the world. LeBron at any given time is the best player in the world. So is Anthony Davis. Portland doesn't play defense. Their bold strategy to quote Jason Bateman and dodgeball was to just let their opponent score all the time in hopes of confusing their opponent to let Portland score all the time. And so far it worked for them. But this is 1-8 for a reason. Portland had a bunch of injuries this year. So you can say, well, they normally would be a four. They normally would be a five seed. Maybe that's true. When you play defense like they do, when you have as much weird stuff going on, I mean, they're relying on Melo and Mario Hazonia. Not only are they relying on them to score in big moments, which... Mellow can do, but they're relying on them to be the people who defend LeBron James. That's not going to go well. It's going to be a fun series. You're going to see Lillard just continue to try to put up all the points as long as he doesn't exhaust himself. And this might go six games or so, but in the end, the Lakers are, they are the number one team in the West for a reason. And I think you're going to see that bear itself out. So without further ado, here is my interview with Mr. Ronnie Brewer. I am so excited to introduce our very special guest for this episode. I have across the table from me, Mr. Ronnie Brewer. Ronnie Brewer had a career in the NBA playing for teams like the Utah Jazz, Chicago Bulls, University of Arkansas, Razorback, and a Fayetteville High School player as well. Ronnie Brewer, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. Let's start talking about growing up here mm-hmm. in Fayetteville. What, When you started playing basketball, who were some of the players that you idolized? Who were some of the players that you started to uh, style your game as? Growing up, my first memories, my dad always had me around the University of Arkansas basketball program. One of my best friends growing up, Mike Anderson Jr., Matthew Peterson, Bo slash Nolan Richardson, we were ball boys at Barnhill during basketball games, and then it carried over to Bud Walton. But I remember the later triplets, Lee Mayberry, Todd Day, Oliver Miller, playing at Barnhill, playing against Shaquille O'Neal and those battles they had with Kentucky. You know, I, I loved how Todd Day played. He then left, and then, you know, I – Became a huge Corliss Williamson fan, Scotty Thurman. Uh, those are my two favorite players that, you know, anybody in Arkansas wanted to patent their game or be just like Corliss Williamson or Scotty Thurman. And then as I got older, became huge fans of guys like, you know, Joe Johnson and Gennaro Pargo, you know, Brandon Dean. I mean, you can go down the list of guys because they're, they're so similar and close in age of me when I was growing up. So huge fans of those guys and, you know, became a huge Razorback fan in all sports um, and, you know, supported them and kind of reason why I loved the Razorbacks and kind of ultimately came down to why I chose to, to attend the University of Arkansas. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. You grew up going to Fayetteville High School, which is the town the University of Arkansas is in. You ended up going to the University of Arkansas. Did you have any sort of 
like hometown hero vibes going on, or did you feel any pressure as like the hometown guy playing? In addition to your dad, obviously played for the University of Arkansas as well. Did you feel any sort of the pressure when it came to that? Well, I mean, to know like my family's history, and you know, my mom attended the University of Arkansas, my dad attended the University of Arkansas, my other sister Alicia attended um, the University of Arkansas. How close the University of Arkansas. Uh, to Fayetteville High School just made sense for me ultimately to to go to the University of Arkansas, but that's not necessarily the case. And I explained it to you know my high school coach and my family that yes, Arkansas is a great option. And it's, it's here. I know a lot about them. Um, I've been around here my whole entire life, but I have to make a conscious decision what's best for me, and that, that's why I explored other schools so I can get to know them, know the coaching staff, know the players. And what they have to offer me, not only on the court, but off the court academically. But ultimately, when it came down to it, you know, Arkansas was the best fit for me. Uh, I wanted to to be a pioneer and kind of change and get things back rolling how they used to be. The Razorbacks were kind of down throughout my recruitment. I was getting recruited by UConn, who won a national championship. Florida, they won a national championship. LSU, they they went to the Final Four. Oklahoma went to the Final Four. Oklahoma State went to the Final Four. Kansas went to the Final Four. So all the schools that um, were recruiting me were very successful. And then, you know, I came to Arkansas and being that I wanted to turn things around and, and get it back on track how it's supposed to be. So that's ultimately why I made that decision. Do you ever feel any sort of not necessarily regret, but like a trepidation as to like maybe maybe if I'd gone to UConn, I could have been you know part of a much bigger piece of the natural or the national scene when it yeah. comes to basketball. Do you ever think about that? Not at all, because when I came when I went to Arkansas, I made that decision. I went in for the the right reason and the reason why I wanted to go there. I it wasn't any additional pressure. It wasn't like I, I had a, these big shoes to fill for my dad. I mean, he played in the seventies. I went to school in the two thousands. And so I got to go and just be, to me, a, a normal student. Yes, I knew a lot of people on campus because I went to Fayetteville. A lot of people went to school. And, yeah, it was a little weird at first because my poster was, you know, yeah. all, in, all around campus and stuff like that. And You're, like, staring at yourself so, as you're walking across campus. Yeah, so that was <laughs> that was a little weird and different. But other than that, man, I don't have any regrets about the decision I made or, or not going to these other schools. I feel like as an M- NBA scout, you get paid to find – talent, hidden gems. And I think that once we started winning and got more on the national scene, that my name started coming up in conversations of being a really good basketball player and it gained traction. And, you know, I think it led to me getting picked as the 14th pick by the Utah Jazz. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about pro career here in just a second. Right now you are helping to coach at Fayetteville High School. What differences are you seeing in the style of play when we look at the way that you played high school basketball compared to how students are playing basketball now are you seeing influences from players like Steph Curry or James Harden where it's a lot more like five out and a lot more wings and and you're getting a little further away from that you know like having a center and having you know a low post guy are you seeing differences in that in the high school world yeah I I think the game of basketball is changing a little bit um as far as you know there are big players still out there but I think they're they're more skilled I think they're they're adapting to play a little bit more on the perimeter. You know, the difference and people don't understand is when you watch NBA basketball, it, it might look a certain way, it might look lethargic. It might look like they're not playing any defense. But you got to understand those are the best players in the world that, yes, they might score a lot, but they put on so much practice and work um, and, and what they do in their craft that I tell the kids now, like, hey, if, if you want to shoot that shot, 
like I got to see you work on it in practice, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I don't want you to come to the game and then all of a sudden let me try something new. But, you know, if you're working on it in practice and you make it where it's comfortable, I don't have a problem with you doing anything like that. And so that's what I just – I push our student athletes is, man, bust your butt, work your butt off, defend, and, you know, communicate and good things will come from that. You know, we I teach you how to play the right way, passing, cutting, moving out the basketball, sharing it, and, you know, being your brother's keeper, facilitating, making one more extra pass, that good things will happen. But, you know, that's the difference with us. Like, we were more – when I played three or four guards, one predominantly post player inside, you know, we were going to try to throw the ball in the post, cut off the post. You can't score, throw it back out, get on the perimeter, move it around. I think now uh, with not a predominant big guy, um, you're looking at usually four or five perimeter, no post or four perimeter, one post. Play more fast pace, up tempo, usually shooting a little bit more threes than normal, running the pick and rolls or doing some kind of motion. So the game has changed a little bit, and that's kind of the difference between how we play when I played and kind of what we're doing now. Yeah, it's funny. When I think of when I played high school basketball, which was all of one year because I'm 5'6 and had no chance to really <laughs> ever make it, one of my favorite things to do was to be a post player. So I would like, you know, and when we're playing pickup or something, like I would try and like back a guy down and post up. And without fail, our, our big guy, our center, would always be out on the three-point line and he would be the guy who's shooting the threes. And he could do it in a pickup game, but not in the real game. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because we're seeing players like Giannis, we're seeing players like AD, you know, these big six-foot 11 seven foot tall guys who you know we're we're looking at the way that they play and we say man like they've got a really great game and they need to figure out how to be a three-point shooter and do that well to complete themselves as a great player you know 10 15 years ago we're not saying that we're not telling carl malone or shaquille o'neal he needs to figure out how to shoot a three-point well a, a good example of that is dwight howard yeah you know dwight howard came in the league he was a low post presence, throwing lobs. During that same era, you had like a Shaquille O'Neal, Dikembe Mutombo was still a post. Mari Stoudemire. Mari Stoudemire, Roy Hibbert. I mean, you can go down the line, Yao Ming, of, of bigs that were, you know, Tim Duncan were predominantly back to the basket yeah. within, you know, 15 feet range, maybe to pop out for mid-range jump shot or free throw line extended. To now, you're seeing guys like Kevin Love or Anthony Davis or Giannis or um, Brooke Lopez, yeah. uh, uh, Porzingis at Dallas. There's there's a lot of guys who are predominantly body wise should be a center power four down in the low post, but now they're expanding their games where they're picking pops from guys and they're expanding their range, which expands the defense, which opens up the floor for everybody and and. Um, you know, it's a true testament to their work ethic because they're, they're spending the countless hours in the gym making their shot consistent. When we look at what's happening inside the bubble right now, different teams, different players, what has surprised you the most from watching some of these games, watching some of these players? What surprised you the most about all this? <laughs> to be honest, it had nothing to do with basketball is how they're handling um, the coronavirus. Mm. You know, to me, that's the most impressive thing. All whatever the, their health People down there, their trainers, their doctors, they're uh, countless testing them three times a day, um, monitoring everything and making sure everybody's safe. I didn't think that that was going to be able to happen. And I thought there was going to be some flaws in it because um, Disney wasn't really um, forcing their employees to stay uh, in the bubble. And I thought that might 
make somebody um, contract the coronavirus. I knew the games were going to be competitive. I knew there was going to be guys having big, big nights, uh, night in, night out, because, you know, as any competitor, you, 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 get, you get taken away from something that you love. When you get back to that, and it's like you got a second chance, you give it your all, and you, you're seeing guys compete as hard as they possibly can, and you're seeing the, the guys that are stars, you know, show – and flex their star power. And then you're seeing some guys who, you know, might not have a biggest name coming out there and really shocking the people and, and playing well and putting their name uh, on the map. Yeah, it's been it's been fun watching guys like TJ Warren, who, you know, I I knew who he was, but I didn't I didn't tune into many Pacers games prior. And now I'm excited to watch. Well, to be, to, to be play. And, it, and this is I'm not trying to disrespect TJ Warren at all. I mean, that's uh, I really didn't know who TJ Warren was until him and Jimmy Butler got into it. Yeah. And I was like, who is this guy getting into it with Jimmy Butler? <laughs> and um, I was like, why would you even do that? And then it became a thing. And then they, they were all, you know, talking trash to each other and yeah. what they're going to do in the bubble to each other. And then TJ Warren comes out and he's, he's playing phenomenal. I'm like, whoa, okay, well, he's backing up some of the trash talk. But <laughs> you see Jimmy comes out and he, you know, slows him down a little bit and, you know, they get the best of him. But, you know, seeing guys like Devin Booker come out there and play well and keep his team in the hunt and Luca don't you playing phenomenal keeping his team in the hunt and then you seeing guys like Anthony Davis and LeBron James do what they do best and and it's very impressive to me that like the Clippers yes they have star power yet they have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard but they're really their third and fourth option hadn't been able to play yet and to see that they're still playing with all these playoff contenders without their third and fourth option is kind of scary because it shows how much potential and how good this team could be. And I think that I think everybody's kind of aware of that, that, Hey, the Clippers got Kawhi and, and Paul George and they're playing very, very well, but they don't have Lou Williams yet or, and they're still winning or if not winning, they're one or two points off, but it's good to see guys like James Harden, Russell Westbrook play well together and build that chemistry still. And it's really impressive to me Chris Paul's being able to do what he's yeah. been doing at, at his age. You know, LeBron, that's a big deal because of how he plays, but he's bigger. You know, he's 6'8", 265. He's still like a physical specimen. You, you look at Chris Paul, he's maybe six foot. Maybe. He might be six foot. Maybe 185 pounds. And he's out there having his way with anybody who gets in front of him. So it's good to see him in a, in a good rhythm. And I'm, I'm very just excited that the, the NBA is back and it's, it's having a lot of success. Yeah, for sure. You got drafted by the Utah Jazz and spent first couple of years of your career under head coach Jerry Sloan, who just passed away recently. You also played with Tom Thibodeau when you were in Chicago. What similarities in their coaching styles did you notice? What differences did you notice uh, between those two legendary coaches? Both of them are, were... were pretty hard-nosed coaches um I would what do you use, mean by I, that I, I would use the word stubborn for coach Sloan because you know coach Sloan would always tell he would every day I would be like coach why, why, why are we going through our plays every day um he would always tell him he's like well Ronnie if we run our plays at a certain pace and I mean when we're running we're running full speed every time we get on the court and we know the plays so well like the back of our hand and we can just use hand gestures, not even calling the plays out. It doesn't matter if the other team knows what we're doing. They're going to have to stop us from doing because I'm not going to change what we what we do. Said I started doing pick and rolls in these plays, and it worked with Carl Malone and John Stockton. I'm going to keep on doing it. It's going to work with Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer. And I need you other guys to facilitate and be a, a helping hand with these guys 
He, I think he changed my career. Like a lot of people were like, man, why why did you not shoot the ball as much when you were playing for Utah? Well, coming to my rookie year, he basically told me we got a max guy in Carlos Boozer, Mehmet Okur, Andre Kirilenko. We've got a max guy in Darren Williams being a top three pick. And we've got Derek Fisher. What can you do to stay on the floor? Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to do the same thing I did in college. I was I scored an average 18.8 and got rebounds and got – Assists and got steals. I was like, I do a little bit of everything. He was like, I understand that, but they all can do everything that you just named. Everybody in the NBA can do what you just named. He says, if you want to find your your niche in the NBA and get on the court quicker than I would want to put you on there, do something they don't do and they don't defend. So I was like, okay. I was like, I'm not scared to guard somebody. So started guarding people, didn't back down for people. And he was like, well, you're going to start for me. I have faith in you. I have trust. You're going to make the right plays. Off. I'm not worried about offense. You're going to make the right play. If you're open, you're going to shoot it. You have the lane, you're going to drive it. If you can make a play for somebody else, you're going to do it. I don't have a problem with that at all. He's like, I need somebody I can count on to, to stop somebody. And, you know, he chose me to be that guy. And that carried me into to Chicago playing for Coach Thibodeau. And I, talk, I just talked to him a couple of days ago to con- congratulate him on the New York Knicks job. Yeah. You know, the thing the difference between those two coaches is Tibbs, hard-nosed, stubborn, Stayed true to his core and values, just like Coach Sloan did. Only thing is that he adapted a little bit offensively to fit people on his roster. You know, we had a, a young Derrick Rose who had a lot of freedom. We had Lou Alding, all-star, a lot of freedom. Boozer, Max guy, all-star, a lot of freedom. Joe Kim Noah, a guy who could do a lot of different things, facilitate, pass, rebound, score. And then you had a whole bunch of role players that suited – the, the piece that we had. And he knew that. So he knew, hey, I can drop a play for Kyle Corver when he comes in because I know he can catch a shoot. I'm going to draw this play up to try to get Ronnie on the baseline or backdoor cutting or, or or him coming off picking rolls to make plays for others. And so he did a really good job by adapting and not sticking to his ways as much. So I think that made him a really good coach. Both those guys practice you super hard. And being you now kind of how it was raised is – you know, you got to work for everything you get. And, um, you know, they saw that in, in me, and I think that's the reason why they, they allowed me to play so much for them. Yeah, you just talked about how uh, Coach Thibodeau is now the coach at New York Knicks. What do you think he brings to the table with this team? It's got a lot of talent and just haven't had anyone really to, like, rein it in or to, like, make it flow the right way. What does he bring to the table, and what does he need to do to make that I, an effective team? I think he, br- he brings a sense of professionalism. Um, not saying that the coaches before were not professional. I think he brings a sense of accountability. He's going to hold everybody accountable for their actions on and off the court. He's going to make you practice hard and he's going to make you defend. And that's two things that people like take from the NBA is, well, they're not playing hard. Well, he forces you to play hard and that's why his teams have so much success. And he's going to force you to defend. Even if you're not a great defender, you can always be in the right spot. That's not, I'm not, that's not saying that you're going to get a stop, but if you're in help position, you're one or two passes away, and you're supposed to be you're, – you're at where you're supposed to be, it gives the offense a sense of, well, I'm guarded, or I don't have any space or any room, and so you did your job. And so he's going to force you and expect you to do that night in, night out, every possession. And I think that's going to be the difference is in the past, it was okay to let some stuff go because they're young and got to develop and – 
everybody's young in the NBA. There's no there's no 50 years olds in the NBA. Not saying the 50s old, but or, it is or, in the NBA. Or, 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 <laughs> but in the NBA, 40 and 50s old. Yeah. So there's going to be a lot of 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, all the way up players. So the excuse that they're young and, and don't have experience, you have to throw it out the window because a lot of people are young and inexperienced, but they have a lot of success at what they do. Yeah, one of the things that has been a strike against Thibodeau a lot of times is he has this tendency to potentially run players into the ground. He did it a little bit with Derrick Rose. Mm -hmm. may may have inhibited him with the injury. He did it in Minnesota. Uh, And so is that something that you worry about with a young player like uh, R.J. Barrett, who is young and has a ton of talent? Is he going to, you know, is he going to end up playing 42, 44 minutes a game and just get uh, run down? I have mixed feelings and, and opinions about, you know, I was brought up during the era of Coach Sloan and, and Coach Tibbs, and it wasn't a lot of over-practicing. It wasn't, that wasn't a, such a thing or or playing you too, playing you too much or playing you or being too hard on somebody. Is there a way to do it and be smart about it? Absolutely. But that's you having your ear to the ground and building a relationship with the coach and having a relationship with the players. I think Tibbs has a revolving door where, you know, you come in and you could talk to him anytime. No matter what time he's going to be at the gym, going there in time to talk to him. He tells you, like, I'd rather have you in practice going through the stuff with the team and sitting out in the games and recover because, you know, you're helping the team get better. If you're not in practice and you're playing in the games, the, the players are not – they don't want to get accustomed to you. They're, you're, they don't know your strengths, your weaknesses. But I think it was more the media – perceived or made it a thing that Tibbs was running in the ground. I think one year when I was playing, we had a lot of guys that get plantar fasciitis on their feet. And, you know, people were like, oh, he's, he's overplaying them in practice. That's why they're having these injuries. It's like, no, like it's we, we, we need to get like different foot implant, like like foot insoles to help our feet out. And that that'll change. <laughs> and, and the thing is, like we were 62 and 20 one year because we played hard we we had endurance fourth quarter you know we wore people out because of the the, the tempo we played and how hard we defended so it, it was to, to me it played to our advantage and i can see a person like Kawhi or lebron or ad who's had injuries in the past yeah. um talk about load management and resting and um because they put so much in the game and they and they are asked to do so much night in night out you do need to be able to recover and take a break but to me, it's it's a testament to how great athletes these guys are that they're able to do this for a long period of time. Yeah, and we talked about, too, this idea that the, the, the game is changing. The speed and the pace is changing a lot. I think you could get away with playing 35, 40 minutes a game when it was a very slow tempo, half court, you know, pick and roll, triangle kind of offense. And now everything moves so much faster. Like everyone is a threat from everywhere on the court that there really is no like slow moments in the game because everything's moving so much faster and I think it's it's stretching a lot of people in ways that's like almost past the capacity of the human body in a lot of ways yeah I mean the game is changing like you said um, it's a lot faster a lot of spread out um, a lot of more weapons because people's versatility I mean it's common sense people are developing people are more stronger they're bigger they're faster quicker now than they were when I was playing and we were the same as the people we who you know you know, play before us. Yeah. And it's going to continue to to grow and change. And to the common fan or the common eye, you know, going to the lane and getting bumped and thrown on the ground and getting up and going to the free throw line, that's a routine play. But you do that 82 games, you know, 
in practice, tour days in training camp. You do that in exhibition. Then you then you have the playoff season. It, it takes a lot out on, on your body. So some of these guys do need that extra break, that extra rest. And some people are like, well, you can rest after the game or you can rest in the offseason. If you want these guys to perform at a high level, you have to listen to them and you have to listen to their bodies. And if they're telling you, hey, I need to take a load off, you got to do that and allow them to do that so they can, when they do come back, they can give you 110%. You talked a little bit about Coach Sloan's stubbornness, especially when it came to play calling. How do you think his strategies would work in the NBA now? Do you think he could pull off the the pick and roll with Gobert and – Mike Conley or yeah, Donovan Mitchell, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Coach Sloan, he used to always tell jokes – Man, the the pick and roll worked before me. It's gonna work at work <laughs> after me. And I mean, it's the truth. Every every play that he runs or or ran, every team in the NBA runs at least one of those plays in those sets night in night out. Yeah, it used to be like we used to run like four X or five X, and it's basically like a, the guard clears out one side. If it's the four side, the guard on the side of the of the power four clears out. The point guard dribbles to the side. Then it's the side pick and roll. On a, on a clear out, you see that every night. Yeah, you know we we do twenty two where it's a you know throw the ball in the post and you you cut off them or you do guard goes sets a cross screen big comes off and you you know you clear. It, it's simple plays that yes he was never going to ever redo his playbook, but he didn't have to because those plays always work and they're, they're going to continue to work. So I think that that they would still work today. They do work today. He's just not. You know, here with this, and he's not coaching. So, well, do you see Quinn Snyder using some of that, some of that, and kind of using it and adapting to the way that he coaches? He's he's taking this framework that Sloan has built for him, and he said yes, and we'll also do some of this stuff too. Absolutely. I mean, you can tell you can tell that they do a lot of stuff because Rudy Gobert, like he's not a catch uh, uh, pick and pop catch and shoot type of guy, right? So it's more Mike Conley, Donovan Mitchell trying to turn the corner, get to the basket have the, the 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 big step up and throw a pocket pass to him or a lob to him. And that's how he scores majority of his 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 points. Yeah. So I see it every day with Quinn Snyder um and his staff running stuff that Coach Sloan um has instilled and in, 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 in made a household name by running pick and rolls consistently. How do you think that your playing style would fit in the NBA now? Do you see yourself being able to to do what you did when you played now? Do you think it would work? Yeah, because I think now the spacing is so wide, uh, there's not a predominantly low post guy that's anchoring and clogging up the paint. Yeah. So for me, like with my basketball IQ, I would always be able to backdoor cut. You know, guys not lose his side of me, I'm cutting backdoor. The teams that I played on, I played with really good players. Really good passers, really too. Good, and so they would get attention. I'd be able to hit open shots like I did when I was playing. So I think I still – my game would translate to today's game mostly because it's turned into a, you know, a scoring league, offensive scoring league. Well, you need somebody to stop these guys from scoring. That's why That's why Paul George and Kawhi stand out so much or, or a Pat Beverly or a Clay Thompson or Jimmy Butler because they're two-way players. Yeah. Not only can they score offensively, but they're going to come and, and defend you uh, at a high level, Chris Paul as well. So I think it would translate just because of how my game was. Did Patrick Beverly set off Dame mode in such an incredible way during that game that he's gone on to score 112 points in two games? Yeah. I mean, like, I, what, I, what happened I, I there? Think, I think him and Paul George did that not necessarily out of spite when they were laughing, 
But as you saw Dame Lillard's interview, like they were laughing and, and having a ball on the on the bench because they're so and everybody is so accustomed to Dame having, you know, ice water in his veins that he's so clutch that when put in those situations, you might as well, you know, count it because he's 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 done it so much in the past. I think everybody in the bubble has probably said a word or two to Pat Beverly. Like, why did you have to wake him up? Or why did you have to a lot of fuel under a, a guy that was already hungry saying like, hey, if I if I come, we're coming for the opportunity to try to get in the playoffs. And he's going to will his team to get in the playoffs. And whoever they face is going to be a tough matchup because he's on a mission and he's playing phenomenally well. He's getting to the basket, he's getting fouled, and he's shooting the ball extremely well. So Portland, if they get into the playoffs, they're going to be the eighth seed. They'll be playing Lakers first round. Do you think there's any potential of an upset there? Um, potentially, because, you know, obviously it's the playoffs. Anything can happen. Uh, but the difference between the basketball games that are going now and when playoff basketball starts, the attention to detail heightens. You're not only, you know, right now they're playing a game. Before the game, they're scouting that team. Next day, off or whatever, then you're scouting the next team. Well, playoffs, seven-game series. So you're going to dissect everything they do really well, what they don't do well at all. And for the Lakers, without Avery Bradley and without uh, Rajon Rondo. I think he is coming back, but he's not playing right now. Rajon Rondo. Rondo, he's coming back? I think so. Well, but, I mean, he hasn't been playing the seeding games. So, so again, him being injured, it's going to take him a little bit of time to get his rhythm back. And do they have enough time to allow him to do that? Because I'm not saying that the Blazers can't or will be them. But if LeBron and Anthony Davis does not have the games that they've been having and those other role players don't step up and contribute, like a Deion Waiters or Dwight Howard, JaVale McGee, uh, KCP, Caruso, Caruso Danny, yeah. Danny Green, if those guys don't step up and, and are big for the Lakers, and you have Dame and C.J. McCollum and Melo and Nurk, and those guys play well, that's going to be a tough series. Yeah. I mean, anything – I mean, you drop a game – here or there, then you're in for a dogfight. So, and, and especially the way Dame Lillard's playing, like he's, he's, he's playing like with a chip on his shoulder, like, like he's a man on a mission. So, very impressive. And I'm loving the games right now in the bubble, but I'm really, really looking forward to these when the playoffs start because things is going to take a step up and everybody's going to elevate their game. It's going to be great. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the West. On the East side, do you think anyone stands a chance against Giannis and the Bucks? I don't, but. At one point in time, I thought the Sixers were going to have a chance because their versatility, Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. I don't know if they have what it takes to knock off the books. I like Miami but just because they have versatility. They have some guys that have been there and done that. And they've got one of their leaders is a dog in, in itself, and he's going to put his players to the to the max. And I think people are kind of sleeping on Toronto. Yeah. Toronto's playing really well. People thought they were going to take a nosedive whenever Kawhi left. But – they haven't. They are playing extremely well. And to me, the playoffs is all about who gets hot at the right time. And, um, you know, that's going to be interesting who, who goes in the playoff extremely hot and, and carries it over to the games. One thing that you and I had talked about when I when I worked for ESPN uh, and was producing your, your weekly show, we had talked about who is going to be the mayor of the bubble. And, and you had said, without missing a beat, Chris Paul. Chris yeah. Paul is running this bubble. Mm-hmm. What makes you say that? Just because being around and being in the NBA, like Chris Paul is the president of the NBA Players Association. So 
when Chris Paul says something, everybody listens because he's like the liaison with all the owners. Yeah. So he's going in the meetings and talking about the wants and the needs of the players and their ideas. And I know just by knowing him as known him personally that he wasn't going to take a back seat to anybody, even if there were some bigger name guys in the bubble. I think him and LeBron were the two names that I said they're going to go hand in hand. LeBron is kind of a larger than life figure um, in the basketball world. But in that bubble, he's just another basketball player. I, I think they're doing a great job in there. They're advocating for their rights and, you know, and we're able to enjoy some really good basketball. Thanks so much, Ryan. It's been awesome. Thanks for being on here. Thank you. Our thanks COVID for the week is related to the guests in the bubble news that we talked about earlier and that I teased this a little bit earlier. So one of the things that the NBA has restricted is that a player must know who the guest is that they're bringing into the bubble, exactly how they know this person or prove that they know this person is not known to the general public as far as I can tell. But it brings up the history of NBA players having associations that the normal person like Matthew and me don't normally have. (laughs) Turns out when you are successful, famous, wealthy, and good-looking, you get to know a lot of different people. None of those things qualify us to fit into that category. Yeah, you're right. And there's also I mean, Chris Humphreys also somehow (laughs) doesn't really go into a lot of those qualities, but he made it work too, for a little while at least. So it makes you think a little bit about the history of NBA players and their associations, especially through, especially through the internet, just how we, how they get to know people, how we follow these relationships. We joked about Lou Williams bringing the Magic City people into the bubble. One of the interesting things about the internet age is we can follow players' relationships in a way that we never could before, and sometimes in ways that we shouldn't be able to now. The infamous J.R. Smith pipe DMs that are out there that you may or may want may not want to look up. We got to follow Andre Drummond's relationship with iCarly star Jeanette McCurdy to go back a decade of pop culture. But for all those stories, we know there are a lot we don't know. Just rumblings about how many tickets players ask for during regular times about needing to get a ticket for their wife and kids, but then a ticket for some other woman that they know that they want to sit somewhere where the wife isn't going to see them. It makes you wonder what's going to happen in the bubble. You can only have so many people, so you have to make some tough cuts. And who's going to get cut? And how do you explain this to different people? Are wives going to be left home for some reason? Not that every NBA player does this. I, I don't think it's the majority of the league. It just It's a fun side plot in NBA subculture, Reddit culture, if you will, that just, it, oh, I was going to say pokes its head out, but that wouldn't be no. good <laughs> regarding this. Uh, Bodie, here's a question I have for you. Yeah. Do you think that the NBA should be in charge of legislating morality? Should the, should the NBA be the arbiter to decide who a player should or shouldn't invite to the bubble. Assuming that they 
pass the the protocols of you know testing negative for COVID nineteen, doing the quarantine. Should it matter to the NBA whether an NBA player invites a guest or invites a family member or invites a cousin? Should these sort of things really be up to the discretion of the NBA executives and commissioner? It seems like the answer should be no. But <laughs> but the NBA is paying for all of this. Sure. They are the ones I the money is coming out of the league's pocket for this whole setup. And there's a lot invested here on this safety and everything. So it's a very slippery slope. Yeah, that's the best argument I have heard so far is to say, not necessarily. I think if it were any other, if the teams were paying for this, or if the player themselves were paying for it, it may be a different conversation. But since the NBA is the one footing the bill, then I think it is fair to say that the NBA has a a word in who does and doesn't get to enter in under the guest protocols. Yes, I, I think I agree. And if we had had more, let's say we do bubbles next year, which they're talking about, multiple bubbles across the country, kind of mini bubbles and things like that, maybe by then you can find ways for people who know each other through Twitter DMs to get into the bubble. I think there's just so much, remember, as we have never heard before, we are living in unprecedented times. Mm. And there's a lot we just need to be like, no, nah, this is the way it is right now. We're just going to, this is how it's being done. We're just leaving it, leaving it that way. And now we're at last possession. On August 14th, Sacramento Kings general manager Vladi Divac stepped down after failing to make the playoffs in all five seasons of his administration. For some listeners, this may feel like a run-of-the-mill insider story about some executive once again failing to do what he's been paid millions of dollars to do. But for me, it's disappointing on a different level. I'm old enough, just barely, to remember Vladi Divac as a basketball player. Most of my memory of him is as a center for the Sacramento Kings, but his career in the early 90s with the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Magic Johnson Lakers was one that really set the stage for European basketball players to be taken seriously in America and in the NBA. His success almost certainly opened the door for players like Peja Stojakovic, Kristaps Porzingis, and Giannis Antetokounmpo to be accomplished and game-changing players here. In 2015, Vladi Divac was brought into the front office for the Kings, eventually being placed as general manager. Great news, right? This game-changing player with an ear to the ground on international talent should be able to help change the landscape of basketball here in Sacramento. Well, not exactly. In the 2014-15 season, Sacramento Kings went 29-53, 13th in the West. The 15-16 season, they were 10th in the West. The 16-17 season, 12th in the West. 17-18 season, again, 12th in the West. In the 18-19 season, they were 9th in the West, but nowhere close to that playoff-bound 8th spot. 
And of course, this year, they were way out of contention. But teams who don't make the playoffs, especially five years in a row, do have one luxury, lottery picks. So what did Vladi Divac do with those lottery picks? In the 2015 draft, with the sixth pick in the draft, the Kings select Willie Cauley-Stein? Yeah, I don't, I don't know who that is either. Later picks in that 2015 draft includes Miles Turner, selected at 11, and Devin Booker, who was selected at 13. The 2016 draft, with the 8th pick in the draft, the Kings select Marquise Chris, who they eventually traded away to pick up Bogdan Bogdanovich. But later picks included DeMontis Sabonis, Karis Levert, Pascal Siakam, and Malcolm Brogdon, the Rookie of the Year that season. The 2017 draft, with the fifth pick in the draft, the Kings select De'Aaron Fox. All right, so not a terrible pick, but they also had two other first-round picks in this draft through trades. Who'd they get? Justin Jackson and Harry Giles? Giles? Styles? Are we noticing a pattern here? 2018, and arguably the draft choice that really screwed Divock's career over. With the second pick in the draft, the Kings select Marvin Bagley III. Not Luka Doncic, the obvious choice for the Serbian GM to choose a Slovenian star who had made a lot of noise in the Spanish leagues at just 20 years old. Marvin Bagley III. So I give you all of this detail to really lay the groundwork for my main point here. Former players don't always make good executives or good coaches or good analysts. Yes, some do. The Celtics' Danny Ainge comes to mind, as does the Lakers' Jerry West and, of course, Phil Jackson. But for every Danny Ainge, there's a Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan may have kicked Danny Ainge's ass on the court, but in the skyboxes, Danny Ainge was never tempted to draft Kwame Brown. For every Phil Jackson, there's an Isaiah Thomas. And don't even get me started on Reggie Miller as a color commentator. Why is there an assumption that in order to be great at basketball off the court, you must first have been great on the court? John Horst, GM of the Milwaukee Bucks, played college basketball for an NAIA school in Sandusky, Michigan, but was undrafted in 2006 and never pursued a career as a professional player after college. Instead, he worked his way up through a few different NBA front offices until landing the job in Milwaukee in 2017 as general manager. And in 2019, he was named Executive of the Year. In case you're wondering, the last former NBA player to be awarded Executive of the Year was in 2012 to Larry Bird. Former NBA players are as complex as any other lightly grouped batch of folks. But to assume that a former NBA player will make a great general manager because they were good at basketball is about as short-sighted as assuming a basketball podcaster will make a great wing for the Sacramento Kings. Basketball is hosted by Matthew Moore. That's me and Bodie. That's him. Bodie, thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Matthew. Huge thanks once again to Ronnie Brewer for sitting down for an interview. Our theme song is by Bad Snacks. Join us next week as we hash out some of the first round of the playoffs and whatever other drama comes forward in the next few days. Stay safe out there, Bubbletonians. We'll see you next week. Thank you.